If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 20 through 24. It's page 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Now, if you're here and you're kind of a little bit ho-hum because I'm not uh, preaching a Christmas message, I'll just have you know that I was asked that question earlier this week. Hey, Chet, are you going to preach a Christmas message on Sunday? And I said, well, I preach a Christmas message every Sunday because I talk about who Jesus is and I talk about why he came. And I do that every single week. I, I may not mention a census that led Joseph and Mary on a journey to Bethlehem. I may not talk about uh, this virgin birth and a child laid in a manger. I, I may not talk about angels appearing before shepherds and the message that they gave to them. I may not talk about some wise men making a journey to go see this infant king But I still, week after week, preach the core of the message. The core of the Christmas message is is found in Luke chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 14. It says, And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the Christmas message right there. Jesus came to be the good news of great joy. Jesus came to save sinners from death and eternal condemnation. Jesus came to fulfill all God's promises for his people. Jesus came to be our forever king. Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself. Jesus came for the glory of God. Now let me ask you, what part of that message have we not covered so far in Ephesians? We've covered every single piece. And so there's no point in me deviating from Ephesians because Ephesians talks about why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come simply so that we could tell a nice children's story by the fire or around the Christmas tree before we go and just gorge ourselves on ham and candy and just like go nuts and opening up presents and go on this mad dash from one family gathering to the next over and over and over again while we sing songs about jolly fat men and reindeers with red noses and jingle bells. That's not why he came. I'm glad you think so. Jesus Jesus didn't come so that we can watch movies about Ralphie or Kevin or Ebenezer or Charlie Brown or George Bailey or the Grinch and somehow think that we're celebrating Christmas. No, the eternal son of God put on mortal life. He lived a holy, obedient, perfect life, obeying God in all things. He died for sin And was raised to life again so that dying, mortal, sinful men might have new birth in him. That they might live a holy life. That they might die to sin. That they might be raised to walk in newness of life with him. That is the Christmas message. But so often the Christmas message uh, is substituted with other things. or, Or we just stop too soon in the story. We end with a birth rather than new birth. I mean, a great example of this can be found in the song that we just sang. One of the best Christmas carols that you can sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Now, so often we stop at the third stanza. We sing the first three verses, right? And it ends with born to give them second birth. And that's great. That's beginning to give us a glimpse of the story. But in order for us to understand the Christmas message, we need to sing all five stanzas. We sang four today, but we need to sing all five. The fifth stanza is the one that completes it all, which we did sing, praise the Lord, thank you, Caleb, right? The fifth stanza finishes the Christmas message. It says, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Efface means to wipe away or to rub out. And so he's saying, rub out our sinful likeness of Adam. 
Stamp thine image in its place. Remake us into the image of God, the image that we were meant to be created in and to live in. Second Adam from above, that's Jesus. Reinstate us in thy love. He's saying restore us in your love to what we once were, to what we were meant to be. Let us thee, the lost, regain thee, the life, the inner man. Give us life in our inner beings, this eternal life that comes only from you because we're dead in our sin. Oh, to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Lord, give us, your, give us yourself through, through faith in Christ. Let that be true in us, in our hearts. This is the Christmas message. And the Christmas message is a message of change. Christ came into the world not just to relate to us, not just to set an example to us, not simply to do what is necessary to cover our sin. No, Christ came to make us like him, to restore us to the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the Christmas message. And that's the Christmas message we will see from Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24. Christ didn't come so that we could share in family traditions or have some man-centered notion of Christmas spirit. No, Christ came to change us. That's the Christmas message from Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. Christ came to change us. Now, I want us to read it, but for context, I want to begin in verse 17. So Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, page 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, Christ came to change us. And so how did he do that? He did that by giving us three gifts that we're going to talk about this morning. How is he doing that? Well, first Christ came so that we might be taught in him. Now, I know that this is going to sound a bit bah humbug, and I really don't mean it to be, but, you know, Christmas has become one of the most heretical times of the year. It's one of those times where maybe this is the only experience people have with the name of Jesus Christ, and it's just wrong. It's confused. It's muddled, right? It ends up becoming false because it's not completely true, right? You don't believe me? Just watch all those Hallmark or Lifetime movies, right? You know, Jesus and my grandpa are speaking to me, um, uh, even if you set aside all of the materialism and all the consumerism and all of these false fables, these myths, these notions of life at the North Pole, and you just focus on the message of Christmas, right? The, the Christian message, what it's saying about Jesus that's being communicated there, it doesn't tell the whole story. And if this is all of the Christian message that people get, it, it will inevitably lead them to the wrong conclusions. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Take, for example, the theology of away in the manger, right? That sweet little lullaby about the baby Jesus sleeping in a feed trough, right? He's, he's a cute little Lord that doesn't cry. Well, we don't know why he's Lord or why he doesn't cry. And, and we're to pray that he would love us and be near us and that he would bless all the dear children under his tender care, you know, an infant caring for little children, and, and that he would take us to heaven to be with him there. Why? What does it matter? Angels we have heard on high. Does anyone really know what in excelsis Deo means? Or take silent night. In that song, we learn that the baby Jesus is holy and tender and mild. 
He's born of a virgin. He's the son of God. That's good. We don't really know what that means. He's Lord at his birth. He is the Christ, the Savior who gives redeeming grace. Now, that's a lot better. But if that's all the truth about Christ that people are getting at Christmas time, then it falls woefully short. It doesn't answer the question why. Why do we need a Savior? Why did the Son of God take on flesh? Why do we need him? It says nothing about how his life should change ours. Christ didn't come so that we could sing songs about the baby Jesus. He came so that we could be radically changed by Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 20, but that is not the way that you learn Christ. No, we have been told in Ephesians that the reason why the Son of God took on flesh and was born of a virgin was to save us from ourselves. Right, that, that every one of us has sinned against the holy creator God of the universe, the God who made us, the God who sustains us. We've all sinned against him. We've all tried to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I'm God. I want to try to define my relationship with him rather than recognizing that he created me and he sustains me and I am obligated to him, not he to me. We have all transgressed. We've all followed our selfish and sinful desires so much so that we've become mastered by them. They rule our hearts in in deception and, and we've all gladly and willfully placed ourselves under God's just and holy wrath against our sin. The Son of God became man in order to do what we could not, to live a holy, perfect, obedient life to God. Life that you and I can never live. And to lay down that life by dying on a cross for sin. He gave his life as a ransom for many. To satisfy God's wrath against sin. That is why he came. He rose again. Not just so that we could be reconciled to God. But so that we could be made anew in Christ. When we turn away from our sin and we follow Jesus in faith, not only does our position before God change, like God doesn't look at me as a sinner or an enemy anymore. He now looks at me as a child, but our whole lives change. Everything about us changes. Our hearts change. Our minds change. Our lives change. We are a new creation. God has made us alive. He has given us new life in Christ. This is more than just being forgiven of our sin. We are adopted into God's family. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God's power is now at work within us to change us, to make us into something that we never were. We are now united with Christ and we are called and equipped by the power of God to grow into maturity in Christ together. We become like him. Friends, that means change. This is why Paul said that we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of our minds. We are to no longer live in the way that the unbelieving and hopeless world lives because they have refused to learn the truth about Jesus Christ. They have hardened their hearts against him. They have darkened their minds against him. They have alienated themselves from true life, from the life of God, and have given themselves up to practicing every sinful passion. That's what they long to do. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. The life of a believer is categorically different than an unbeliever because of our new life in Christ. And what we've seen so far in Ephesians, when we think about learning Christ, God has done a lot to teach us about Christ. It's not like we're left to ourselves, right? We learn in chapter 1 that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. We also learn that God has given us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that he has enlightened the eyes of our hearts to see this hope and this immeasurable riches of his glory and this overwhelming immeasurable power at work within us. That God has revealed himself through his word that he has given to the apostles and prophets for our benefit. That God is in the process of giving us the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the height and breadth and length and depth and and width and, and you name it, right? The unsurpassing knowledge of the love of Christ Jesus, right? He is making that known to us. 
But not only that, not only is that what God has done and what God is doing in us, but, but in addition, God has founded us upon the one faith, the true doctrine of Jesus Christ, that we might know him and have a right understanding of how we are to live in light of him. God has united us together in the church. The church, which Paul tells Timothy is the buttress of truth, the reinforcer of truth. God has given, or Christ himself has given us, rather, leaders to equip the church for maturity. And those are all things that we are to participate in to learn. So even in learning, God equips us, God gives us knowledge, but yet at the same time, he he puts us in a position to learn doctrine, to be a part of the church, and to submit to faithful teachers who would be able to help us to reach maturity in Christ. And God does all this so that we would no longer live as those who are dead in their sin. We would no longer live as those who follow the world, who have been tempted and led astray and deceived by the devil, as those who were led astray and deceived by their own sinful desires, as those who are condemned under God's just and holy judgment against us. We learn Christ so that we would no longer be separated from Christ, that we would no longer be alienated from his people, that we would no longer be strangers to all of his promises, having no hope and without God in the world. We are taught in Christ so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We are to no longer walk as the unbelieving world does in the futility of their minds because we have learned Christ. Our lives are changed. We are no longer the same because we have learned Christ. But then Paul pauses in verse 21. And he says, assuming... Provided, if indeed you have heard about Christ and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. If you've truly been taught in Christ, then you know that the truth is in Jesus. Paul is saying here that the historical gospel account of the person of Jesus Christ is the truth. It's absolutely, fundamentally true. Everything we know about Jesus, everything we learn about him in scripture is true. Unlike the lies and deceptions and dangerous teachings that the unbelieving world expounds regarding Jesus to deceive us and to lead us into believing lies about him, the word of God is true. Jesus of Nazareth is the only truly begotten son of God. Or as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. This true and living Jesus was made man. He was crucified also for us under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. That really happened. He suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to scriptures and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. Paul is saying, I am assuming that you have been rightly and faithfully taught about the true and historical account of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because the truth is in him. He is the truth. The historical Jesus is himself the embodiment of truth. Surely you have been taught the truth about Christ. Now, unfortunately, in this day, we can't make that assumption. As many people who profess to be believers in Christ, many so-called churches have long since abandoned belief in the historical Jesus, who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. But Paul actually goes one step further in this statement. And it's sad because you can't really see it in the ESV or in the NIV because they supply a preposition when there's not one there. He says, if indeed you have heard, not about him like it says in the ESV, or if indeed you have heard of him as it says in the NIV, but it actually says, if indeed you have heard him. There's no preposition. If indeed you have heard Christ. You know, Jesus himself said in John 18, 37, for this purpose I was born 
And for this purpose, I have come into the world, right? Jesus' purpose for Christmas, to bear witness to the truth, that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Those who are of Christ know the truth when they hear it, and they know it is the truth that is from Christ. And Paul actually says it another way in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, when he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so Paul assumes that when you hear the truth of the gospel from your, your Christian teachers, you are hearing it for what it really is, the true and authoritative word of Christ. Through their teaching, Christ himself is teaching about Christ, the word that is effective and working in the hearts of those who believe. And so, friends, you see, it, it, it's not enough that we were taught about Christ. You have to get this. It's not enough that we learn information about Jesus. We must learn it for what it is and for who it is. And so the question really becomes for you this morning, have you heard Christ or have you merely heard about Christ? Do you recognize the difference? Have you been taught just merely information about Jesus? Or have you heard in such a way as to bring you into a vital relationship with the living Jesus? Have you heard him? You see, nothing else that I say is gonna matter or make any sense at all unless this is true. That when you hear the word preached, do you hear the words of men? Do you hear just me standing up here just kind of going off? Or do you hear the truth, the authority, and the power of Christ behind the words? Friends, that's what it means to be taught in Christ. That's what it means to learn him, to truly learn him. Jesus came so that you might hear him. And to be taught in him so that you might listen to his voice. And all of those who listen to his voice will be changed. So that's the first gift that Christ gives us, right? Christ came to change us and he did this by by teaching us in him. But second, Christ came so that we might be clothed in him. Living for the passions and desires of this life apart from Christ is like trying to clothe or to adorn ourselves with filthy rags. Do you hear what I'm saying? Basically, we have this, this innate desire to clothe ourselves, to cover ourselves. And, and when we are doing that apart from Christ, we're covering ourselves with filthy rags. I, I don't know if you remember the story of mankind's fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked and exposed and they were ashamed for their sin. And so what did they do? They hid from God and they hid from each other. And then they attempted to try to fashion coverings for themselves out of fig leaves, these shoddy coverings to hide their true sin and shame from each other and from God. Well, the reality is, when we sin, when our eyes are open to the fact that we, we have sinned against God and that apart from the grace of Christ, we are trying to cover over our sin. We're trying to hide our true nature from God and from each other. This is what we do. Same thing Adam and Eve did. That's what we do. Deep down, we all know that we've sinned against God. I mean, you've, you've all had those quiet moments where you have been reflecting upon your nature, your character, your heart. Deep down in, in the solitude of, of your room or the solitude of being just somewhere out there by yourself in the dark, you've recognized that you have sinned against God. And it has brought shame. You stood there and you knew that you were naked before God. And so what we attempt to do in our sin is to cover over that nakedness and shame. 
And we'll find anything we think can cover us, anything we think can be a substitute to hide our true nature from God and from each other. We do this all the time by, by covering over our shame with worldly desires. We, we seek to find glory or our identity in external things that would hide our true nature from each other. Maybe, maybe it's like this. Maybe you try to cover yourself with talents or ambitions that would allow you to receive glory from other people. right? Because here's the thing. If those people are praising me, then they can't see who I truly am. Or if they're, at least if they're praising me, then they don't see me for as much as I truly am. They're making exceptions. They see me as better than what I really am. Perhaps they try to conceal or cover over their shame through success or, or wealth or good grades. Maybe just trying to live a very highly moral life. Maybe you do it through religious activities or worldly prosperities. Basically, I want to adorn myself with something that is grand, with something that is worthwhile, because then I can look at my coverings and I think that I've accomplished something and I don't see my true nature anymore and hopefully no one else does either. I want to adorn myself with these external things. Or perhaps... Perhaps we seek to medicate our shame. We, we try to dull the pain and the shame and the sorrow for our sin. And we do this by indulging in things that would medicate us, that would dull us to our true and sinful state. Maybe that's sex or drugs or food or entertainment or alcohol. We indulge in those things to forget who we are. And when this, the shame and the sin comes creeping back in, we do it again. We do it again. We do it again to medicate ourselves, to hide away who we truly are. What we're actually doing in all of this is trying to cover over or hide our true sinful nature and try to find our identity in our coverings, whatever they are. The problem with this is that God, Satan, and eventually everyone else sees right through it. It's obvious over time, our true nature. We're trying to cover ourselves with filthy garments. It's kind of like, it's kind of like trying to camouflage your nakedness in a white room by covering yourself with mud. You're still right there, bro. You're still naked. You're just covered with mud. And even when we try to hide our true nature and save ourselves through our morality or through our own religious efforts or some ethical standard apart from Christ, we are, as Jesus said to the religious leaders of that day, merely white-washed tombs. So you may be in that white room and you're trying to cover your nakedness and shame with white paint instead of mud and filth, but the reality is there's still only death underneath the truth is that all your deeds, righteous or unrighteous, are as filthy rags. Friends, this is who we are apart from Christ. This is what we've become. In all of our efforts, we have, we've merely just tried to cover over and hide away our true sinful nature. And the best and the only thing that we could do in that situation is not to continue to try to pile up layer upon layer, but to acknowledge our garments for what they truly are. Polluted attempts to cover myself from God and others. But the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus changed all of that. Though we have no true ability in and of ourselves to remove these filthy garments and to cover our nakedness and shame with pure garments, with anything that is holy before the Lord, through Christ, God did what we could not. We get a foreshadow of this in Zechariah chapter 3. God is the one who removes our filthy garments. 
God is the one who takes them off of us and leaves us naked but clean, purifies us with the blood of Christ. And he takes those filthy garments and he places them on Christ. And then he takes these holy vestments, these pure garments of Christ's righteousness and he clothes us in that. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are covered by him. He takes away our sin and our iniquity and he places Christ's righteousness upon us. Jesus is the one who covers our sin and our shame. And so now that when God sees us, he doesn't see our filthy, sinful garments because those have died upon the cross. What he now sees us covered in is the righteousness of Christ. We're covered by his blood. We're made clean by his blood. And through confessing our sin and turning away from that foolish pursuit of clothing ourselves with our passions and desires from this world, we, through recognizing our need of Christ and resting in and accepting his life to cover ours, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The question becomes, do you believe that? Is that the way you see yourself now because of Christ? That you are clothed in his righteousness. Friends, the greatest Christmas present you will ever receive is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what it means to be taught in Christ. This is why Paul said that we were to be taught in him to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You've been clothed in his righteousness. So why? Why would you try to clothe yourself any further? Why would you seek to put those old garments back on? Now, I I need to pause right here for a second. Because if you've been a Christian for a while, it's quite possible that you've never heard this. And for that, I have to tell you, I'm sorry. But I'm not surprised. Because so often, people who profess to be Christians, churches that profess to be Christian churches, they they go to one of two sides of things. Either... They don't talk about sin. They minimize sin. They just say, it doesn't really matter because the grace of God has covered that, so we don't need to talk about that anymore. We can just talk about other things like your morality or, or just, I don't know, just light, light things. Or, or you're at the other extreme where you're taught that you have to spend your life doing more and more and more and more good, more righteousness that you have to, by your own strength, by your own ability, by your own power to rip yourself from those filthy garments and to try to put on enough good garments, enough good deeds to kind of cover all of that up so that one day at the end of all things, God might decide, you know what, I I think you've done enough and so I will cover you at that point with Christ's righteousness. More often than not, not that's, that's what people believe. One of those two extremes. And neither of them are true. We are, by the grace of God, apart from any works of our own, perfectly clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is God's work in us, for us, through us. And yet... It is because we have been clothed in Christ that we are to no longer live as the unbelieving world does and to try to continue to clothe ourselves with these filthy rags. This is what he's saying in in verses 21 and 22. You were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self that belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Because you are a new creation in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, don't try to cover yourself with old sinful garments. Don't try to take Christ off and to place him on a hanger and to put those old garments back on. Don't don't try to wear Jesus as your Sunday clothes. 
That old self, that old filthy garment, that belongs to your former manner of life. That's not who you are. You're not that anymore. Why would you try to put on old dirty rags on top of pure clothing? Why would you take sewage and smear it all over your tucks? Why would you take red paint and dump it all over your beautiful wedding gown? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you seek to take Christ off and put him over there to put those old polluted garments back on as if they'll be able to cover you, as if they're more satisfying than the ones that Christ has given you to wear? Friends, that is, why would you want to moonlight as a pimp or a prostitute when Jesus has made you and is making you into his pure and spotless bride? It doesn't make sense. So stop. Put it off. Put off that old self. Put off that old conduct. Put off that old manner. Put off that old behavior. Put off that old way of life. It does not satisfy. You know that it doesn't. So put it off. Get rid of it. Stop trying to put it on. Don't you see? Don't you see that it is corrupt? Don't you see that it will only lead you astray? Don't you see that it is rotten? That it is decaying? That it is putrid? It will only lead to ruin and destruction. Do not be deceived by those old desires. Don't be led astray by those cravings and those defiling passions. You know they don't work. You know they don't work. So don't bow to them again. Why would you bow to them again? It's not who you are. You have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. You have been made new. You are a new creation. That's why Christ came. So now live in your new identity. Be who you now really are. Put off that old self. Put it to death. That's not who you are. Don't be corrupted by those sinful, deceptive desires any longer. Now, I trust at this point that I don't need to make more specific application for you than what I've already done. I'm confident that right now the Holy Spirit is bringing things to mind in your own hearts, in your own lives. Those ways in which you've, you've kept trying to put on that old self and you've forgotten who you are in Christ. And so, put them off. I don't need to say more than that. I mean, maybe you're here and you realize, you know what? I have been fully living in that worldly adornment. I have been fully living to try to cover my sin and my shame with every pursuit. And I know it's not working for me. And what I want to do now more than ever before is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so whether you're here as a believer or someone who is not following Christ, the response is absolutely the same. Repent. Turn away from that old self. That does not have to control you. That does not have to define who you are. And to respond by believing, by trusting, by resting, by being covered in the righteousness righteousness of Christ and walk in obedience by continuing over time to put off the old self and to live in your new identity in Christ. That's gift number two, but Christmas isn't over yet. We still have one more gift to open. Christ came to change us and he did this so that we might be taught in him that we might be clothed in him. And third, so that we might be made new in him. Now this goes one step further than what I've already talked about. It's even more than hearing Christ and being taught in Christ. 
This is even more than putting off our old self because we have been clothed with Christ. We are to, as it says there in verses 23 and 24, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I don't know if you realize this, but salvation is both punctiliar and a process. Punctiliar in that it's a moment in time. It's a process in that it takes your entire life. The moment that the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. Now, if you know our children's catechism and all, regeneration is a change of heart that leads to what, Layden? True True repentance and faith. Very good, bud. This is... The Spirit's work in our lives to give us new life, to cause us to be born again. At that moment that we have Christ, we hear the word of truth, we're taught the gospel, and we respond in faith. That moment, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We don't become more righteous than we already are because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our salvation is punctiliar. That moment in time, that's who we are. And yet, it's not complete. Because we move away from just being declared righteous and wearing the righteousness of Christ to actually becoming righteous, to become like him, created after the likeness of God, right? We're still in the process of learning Christ. We're still in the process of putting off the old self, killing that residual sin in our hearts. We still need to continually renew the spirit of our minds so as not to be deceived by our old desires and to fall back into futile thinking and, and that would lead us to hardening our hearts and, and darkening our minds and alienating ourselves from the life of God. And we're still in the process of growing to maturity in Christ by regaining what has been lost in the fall into sin. We are being recreated into the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are being made new into the image of Christ. So if we just stopped with point one and point two, we'd be missing something very, very important. It was part of the process that God has intended for us, that we would actually become like Christ. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds means that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, daily and continually fill our minds with truth, with God's truth. We do this by reading and by studying God's word, by meditating and memorizing scripture. We do this by sitting under faithful teaching and preaching. We do this by discipling one another. We do this by holding one another accountable within the context of a loving and truth-filled community of faith. We do this by learning and clinging to the one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't live by emotions or feelings or impressions or intuitions. We live according to the truth. And we do this so we will not be deceived by ignorance or enticed to devote our hearts and minds to futile things that would lead us down that path of futility that we talked about last week. We renew our minds so that we won't be blinded by our emotions or by our circumstances to think and to speak and to act in ways that are inconsistent with our new identity in Christ. We have to remind ourselves constantly of the truth. So renewing our minds, the spirit of our minds, that's what we're doing. It's described this way in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. This was one of those first passages that I memorized as a young believer, and, and, and it was really formative in my own Christian walk in understanding the importance of God's word and how I'm to live in light of it. It says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what it means to renew your minds. And the most practical way that we are made new in Christ is by this daily and continually renewing of our minds with the truth of God's word. 
trusting in him, in his word, more than my feelings, more than my circumstances, more than my emotions, more than the lies that the world is trying to shove down my throat, or more than the desires of my heart. And as we hear Christ and are taught in him, as we remember that we are clothed in Christ so that we seek to put off the old self, as we are continually renewed in the spirit of our minds, we find ourselves putting on our new self, actually growing into and reflecting more, little by little, more and more, every day, the nature and character of Christ. And we do this until at last we become like him because we see him as he is, face to face. But I want to be clear on this. Very, very clear. All who are truly his will put off the old self and put on the new self. They will live in their new identity in Christ. Not perfectly, but repentantly and in faith. And do so more and more. They will progressively Lay down those old filthy garments because they have come to know and to understand just how much better their new ones really are. And so they will seek not only to adorn their new identity, just to reflect it, but to actually become like him. They want to be like Jesus. You see, those who are truly in Christ were created after the likeness of God, according to verse 24. We learned back in chapter 2, verse 10, that together we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what we see there is God is the one who's working. We don't create ourselves. God is the one who created us in Christ. And God has prepared these good works ahead of time that all of those who are truly trusting in Christ and are truly putting on Christ will walk in them. But not only is God the source and the creator of our new life in Christ, he is also the model because we are created after the likeness of God. So he's the one doing the work, but he's also the model. He's the standard that we hold up there, the one that we are pursuing. Our new life in Christ, uh, our, our new self in Christ has been created after the likeness of God. He is our standard. Not something less than that. Not some other person. Not some arbitrary standard that we set for ourselves. The likeness of God is the standard. And it's just like we saw in chapter 4, verse 13, that we are to grow as a body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which we learned from chapter 1, who is the fullness of God. That's a real standard. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to be righteous because God is righteous. Again, our children's catechism is helpful here. God's righteousness means that God always does what is right and is the final standard of what is right. And so we who are created in Christ, who have this new identity in Christ, we seek to do what is right in accordance with God's will. God is holy and that he is completely set apart from anything sinful and is completely devoted to his own glory. And so we, as his people, as his new creation, long to reflect his holiness by being set apart from sin and being fully devoted to the glory of God. Now, before you dismiss this as impossible or optional, this verse tells us that this is more than true righteousness and holiness. It's actually a righteousness and holiness of truth, a righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. And what's interesting, I mean, we're thinking about Jesus' birth, right? Even before Jesus was born, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, 
who prophesied in the power of the Holy Spirit about the coming, the soon birth of Christ, in Luke chapter 1, verses 74 and 75, said that Jesus would deliver us from the hand of our enemies so that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, in thinking about the truth, we know that it is true that Jesus has come and has delivered us from our true enemies of sin, death, and the power of Satan. And so, therefore, it is also true then it will be the case that we will serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Not perfectly, but with repentance and faith and more and more until at last sin is no more and we are with Christ forever. But that standard is a real standard and we are being made new into it. Not by our own strength, but by the power of God. So we labor with the strength that he supplies. God has created us anew and he has given us the power to grow and to be changed and to be reformed into the likeness, into his likeness according to the truth. And so God is the source, God is the model, but God is also the goal of our new life in Christ. When we live together in true righteousness and holiness, when we do that as a church, we put the glory of God upon display. We help the world to see God a little bit more for who he is, his excellencies, his perfections, his glory. In us, they see that the gospel does indeed have the power to change. It has the power to transform. As we live the lives that we were meant to live, our lives together, as we live the life that we were created and recreated to live, we get God and God gets the glory So don't minimize it. Christ came to really make us new in him. So as you spend time with your loved ones this Christmas season, as you're getting ready to leave and head out and spend time with them, let's not get distracted by the lights and the sounds and the smells that we all enjoy. Let's not drool over food or opening Christmas presents. Let's remember that we've already received everything that we could possibly receive from Christmas, that which is far greater, three gifts. We were taught in Christ. We were clothed in Christ. We are made new in Christ. No greater gifts than these. So let's put on our new identity in Christ. Let's be who we truly are in him. Let's accept the true message of Christmas that Christ came to change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. And Lord, I, I pray that our eyes would be open in, in new and amazing ways to the wonder of the gift that we've been given in Christ. Lord, may we not minimize him May we not treat him as optional or as just part of what Christmas means, but that we would recognize him as the ultimate gift that changes us to make us like him. Lord, open our eyes to the ways that we have still sought to cover ourselves, to hide our sin and shame from you and from each other. And I I pray that we would see those as filthy rags. Lord, I pray that we would look at your purpose in making us new in Christ and that we would believe that that's really possible because it is, and that you are really doing that work. And so may we pursue it diligently because we know that you supply the strength to make it so in your own good and perfect time. Help us to not minimize or to stop short or stop at some arbitrary standard. Instead, let us hear from Christ and be taught in Christ to love Christ more than anything else. It's in his name we pray. Amen.